Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel and I love true crime. I'm Nick and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we're going to talk about heroin, Mexico City, and a beat generation marriage that ended when William S. Burroughs shot his second wife, Joan Vollmer, in the head at a house party during a botched game of William Tell. What? (laughs) William S. Burroughs murdered his wife? Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. All right, I'm I'm shook immediately. Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> I feel like I went pale. Look at my hand; it's all like icy. That's crazy. All right, uh, I guess we got to keep going with the podcast. <laughs> all right, damn. Mm, okay, well, every I have to get into business. <laughs> That's shocking. The famous writer William S. Burroughs. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. People are kind of like, don't really talk about that thing. We'll talk about the whole thing. You're okay? t- yeah, we're we going to talk he about it He actually today. was charged with manslaughter, uh-huh. so there's some things up for debate, blah, blah, blah. We'll get to it. Okay. okay. Damn. All right. <sighs> Focus, Nick. Look, guys, our <laughs> listeners, we love you. Every time we get a new Patreon member, we get a little notification on our phone, and it totally lights up our day. So this week, we want to thank Joey, Antonia, Bree, and Carl for signing up at www patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. I'm still sure. I didn't know that's what you were talking about. All right. Those funds go directly to supporting our DIY operation, and it means so much. Thank you. If you are curious about our goals for Muriel's Murders and to see all the bonus episodes available, check out our Patreon. That's right. All right. This is a story involving murder, <laughs> violence. With William S. Burroughs? <laughs> drugs, right. adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like, Nick, and they don't want to hear about those things, or maybe just can't handle them, please consider listening to a different podcast. Well, clearly, there's going to be a lot of shock value in this one, so we'll probably do some cursing and joking, so if you're sensitive to that, turn us off. All right. Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? I guess so. (laughs) Okay, let's get started. upon a time there was a generation called the beats yes <laughs> good good very which good. i'm excited to learn because i know you do a good job of setting all this stuff up and i feel like the beats are something that i think i know about but i couldn't pass a test yeah it's interesting i found this story i was just reading and i found this amazing book the book is called the stray bullet william s burroughs in mexico uh-huh. and it's by jorge garcia robles and it is so good yeah it's just awesome and it's a quick read if you're ever curious i don't know too much about the beat generation i kind of mm-hmm. have an idea of it and then i have the idea of like beatniks yeah uh, right. and when i came across the story i just thought it was pretty wild that yeah. it's not like in it's not something that you'd automatically associate with william s burroughs <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah. i don't know maybe i'm behind on the times but i just thought it was really interesting but this book is awesome uh-huh. and for this episode i also read this essay by james w Grauerholtz. Mm-hmm. it's called the death of joan volmer burroughs what really happened it's an awesome 
kind of concise 70 page article and yeah. it's very very good with lots of cool quotes so those concise are the two places 70 page article i mean it's just dense it's good i'm just saying like if you're interested page article is forever <laughs> if you're interested in this case and you want to read a little more there's tons of mm-hmm. letters and different things like that that are from the sources of the people uh-huh. who are involved in like letters from Allen ginsburg and jack kerouac and all of these really interesting people so yeah. Anyway, if you're interested in this, there's actually a lot of really good material in these two book and essay. And now we're going to get the legendary Muriel Montgomery synthesis. <laughs> All right, synthesize. So on September 6th, 1951, William S. Burroughs, prominent figure of the Beat Generation and author of Naked Lunch, mm-hmm. shot his wife, Joan Vollmer, in the head at a house party in Mexico. So allegedly, Burroughs picked up a pistol mumbled something to Joan about William Tell or this William Tell Act, um, which if anybody's not familiar... I'm not. This is a classic act. It's the thing where you put an apple on your head, right? Mm. And then, like, a guy named William Tell did it with his cousin or something. So they say, like, put an apple on your head, Johnny, and you put an apple on your head, and then William Tell shoots the apple off the top of the head Uh with a gun. So he says, hey, let's show him our William Tell Act, right? So they're in front of a lot of people? They're like at a house party and there's everyone is around. So basically, we'll get into this, Uh but there were two people who were in the room at the time. And there was maybe about 20 feet away, 15 people. Mm -hmm. So it was two adjoining apartments. And everyone was, the party was kind of just starting. They had gotten there around three. So Mm -hmm. by the time this had started, you know, it wasn't like a full on party yet. But there were definitely people there. And he says, you know, let's show them our William Tell Act or whatever he said. And then in response, Joan picked up a glass of gin and put it on the top of her head. And then moments later, Burroughs shot Joan through her temple from across the room, killing her almost instantly. Oh, Um, my God. So today we're going to talk about what it was like to be a member of the Beat Generation and also the marriage between Bill and Joan. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> You're just yanking on your beard. Man. I, know, I'm just, I know. I feel like I don't know, Ginsburg just in a corner with his beard, twirling it, thinking of stuff. Yeah. You know? All right, great. You are like a little beat. Okay. So the Beat Generation, it's a literary movement in the U.S. that came out of a group of authors exploring American culture of, like in the post-World War II era, mm-hmm. right? So the famous works... The most famous works to come out of the movement were probably Hal by Allen Ginsberg, mm-hmm. On the Road by Jack Kerouac, yeah. and Naked Lunch by William S. Burroughs. All three of those are books that I read in college for about four pages and then don't know what happened to them. <laughs> I think maybe that's like a lot of people, right? That's yeah, what we yeah. do. Um, I did read a little bit of Naked Lunch and it's pretty nuts. Yeah. So the themes in these literary works are typically like sexual liberation, spiritual quest or journeys, experimentation and exploration of hard drugs and psychedelics, anti-materialism, anti-conformity, and really hardcore, gnarly, truthful depictions of the human condition. Wow. Hardcore bros. Yeah. Very, very hardcore bros. Yeah. So arguably, the beat movement also spawned 
the beatnik culture of the 1950s, which eventually morphed into, or at least contributed to, the dirty hippies of the 60s and other American counterculture subgroups, mm-hmm. right? So this story follows the lives of William S. Burroughs and his common-law wife, Joan Vollmer. Mm-hmm. So Burroughs was born in 1914 to a wealthy family in St. Louis, Missouri. His grandfather was the inventor of this popular adding machine. And so they had a bunch of money and what, like a calculator? Yeah, something like that. But I think the kind that you use that adds it as you go an adding machine. (laughs) (laughs) Adds it as you go. All right. (laughs) And then (laughs) you've never seen one of those who type it in and it like, tabulates it's different than a calculator (laughs) and i think he's like i don't know his uncle worked for the rockefellers so they're just kind of this upper class family oh he's a rich kid Mm -hmm. he was sent to fancy boarding schools for high school Mm -hmm. and then later he got an arts degree from harvard so he's very well educated and kind of studied at the best institutions so after he leaves college after he graduates he traveled around europe for a while and Among a lot of other things, he became involved in the LGBTQ scene in Austria at the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. And while he was traveling, he met a Jewish woman named Ilsa Clapper. And against the wishes of his family, he married her in Croatia to help her escape the Nazi government. Because stuff was definitely going south that's a cool move yeah good for him all right so they were never romantically linked Mm -hmm. um and they eventually divorced but they remained longtime friends throughout their life so he returned to the states in 1939 and he cut off the top of his pinky finger to impress a dude that he had a crush on (laughs) and after that his parents sent him to what would be a long string of psychiatrists and mental health experts (laughs) was just like trying to was there like a paper cutter around or something? I don't or know. Like he a- just was like, I think it was just like, I love you, bro. And then he cut off the top of his <laughs> finger to like prove it. And then his parents were like, you're not going to be doing this anymore. <laughs> so he kind of did odd jobs in St. Louis, like obviously underperforming based on his, you know, education and trajectory. Yeah, his lineage. Right. And in 1942, he decided to enlist in the army. According to... <laughs> I'm just going to say this. Yeah. Something I read. I read a few different articles and I can't remember which one exactly it was. So it didn't make it into your script, but you remember it. But vaguely. I remember this thing. The idea was that he enlisted and thought that he would be an officer. He uh-huh. would be placed as an officer, but he wasn't. He was like enlisted and assigned to be a, a private. I don't know very much about the army. <laughs> just like a normal guy. He had to go be a soldier. Right. He thought and, he was going to hang out at the big desks and make decisions and walk around and tell people what to do. But they're like, here's a gun, go fight. Right. And I think in Grauerholtz's uh, essay, they talk about how he just got super depressed when he didn't get to be an officer. And they had a family friend who worked as a psychiatrist yeah. basically help him get this diagnosis of depression and mental instability so he could then get like a mental health discharge. Mm-hmm. So that's like the story, I think. But at any rate... The privileged class pulling their strings. Right. He made a choice. It didn't mm-hmm. work out the way he wanted to. <laughs> and he ended up being discharged five months later. Yeah for mental health issues. Okay. 
So after that, he decides, I want to get out of St. Louis, Missouri. I got to get away from my family. I just uh-huh. want to do something else. Yeah, yeah. So he hooks up with his friend, Lucian Carr, who is a, a little bit younger, and Lucian Carr's family friend, David Kammerer, and the three of them go to New York City. What, he's like 21 at the time? He's actually been kicking it in St. Louis for a while, mm-hmm. so he's around 28. And Lucian Carr is maybe eight years younger than him. He's uh-huh. a little bit of a younger dude. And then this man, David Kammerer, is older than both of them. I think he's around his early 30s. The three musketeers assemble. Yeah. Hold on. Is he not writing yet? Is Burroughs not being creative yet? To be honest, yeah. in this story, he doesn't really write until after the period that we cover. So he has a long stretch of time where he wasn't writing at all. And a lot of these guys, I think yeah. they were writing but it doesn't play a prominent role in any of the shenanigans they're doing i think Uh kerouac was writing Uh a lot and people were getting into stuff but Uh specifically william s burroughs was just like doing a lot of heroin okay all right well i was gonna say it's an inspiring tale of a late bloomer for everyone you know heading into their 30s feeling like they haven't accomplished anything you know Burroughs is a beacon of light. That's right. After he killed his wife, he wrote a famous book. (laughs) It was great. He was like in his 40s. All right. So it's now 1943. Yeah. And it's winter in New York City. It's a brutal 15 degrees outside. World War II is raging. The atomic race is on. And William S. Burroughs is right around 30 years old. So by now he's hanging mostly with Allen Ginsberg, mm-hmm. Lucian Carr, and then Lucian Carr's family friend, David Kammerer, who was more of a hanger on. Mm-hmm. David was gay and then by most accounts was infatuated, basically bordering on obsessed with Lucian Carr. So yeah. he would follow them around and kind of constantly be trying to hook up with Lucian. Yeah, did he have money too? He had some money, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think they all did. They were all from like... a. The St. Louis crew did. Yeah, right. Um, but anyway, all of that will be kind of important later. Yeah. So around this time, Burroughs met Jack Kerouac through, I believe, Allen Ginsberg. And Jack Kerouac described Burroughs as, quote, like a shy bank clerk with a patrician, thin-lipped, cold blue-lipped face, blue eyes saying nothing behind steel rims and glass, which I thought was great. (laughs) Well, he's known for being able to string a word or two together. Yeah, right. (laughs) And Burroughs really does look like that. I think he's pretty handsome, you know, when he was younger, but definitely exactly like that. Yeah. And they would just like hang out. The three of them would hang out all the time. So Burroughs would read aloud to Kerouac and Ginsburg. He liked to read things like Kafka. And, you know, he was kind of in a lot of ways the big bad boss of the three of them in Mm -hmm. terms of their dynamic, Mm -hmm. at least early, earlier in like New York city, the big bad boss. Who's like reading them bedtime stories. Yeah. He would read them Kafka and then he would also psychoanalyze them. So he hadn't had any formal training, but he had a lot of therapy. (laughs) So he would lie them down to the bed and like do therapy with them. And Allen Ginsberg, I guess used to just like sob and cry and they would scream and do primal things. You know, there's a version of that. That would be fun as hell. I know it sounds really wild yeah, like super romantic just smoking cigarettes and looking out your new york window at some horrible winter day right you know? while alan ginsburg's lying on a couch just screaming i'm so lonely <laughs> <laughs> nobody loves me love it uh, 
Uh, and also, just as a side note, in this idea of it being romantic, yeah. in 1943, Burroughs also met Truman Capote in New York and thought he seemed, quote, seemed like a shriveled up aging albino with a shrill voice. Oh, my God. That's mean. <laughs> yeah, Burroughs isn't really the greatest guy. <laughs> yeah. I think that's going to be the lesson of this story. Now, I actually have read In Cold Blood, speaking of true crime, and Capote's an absolute genius. Yeah. And a lot of people would agree with you, including me. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everyone. I, that What I said was literally not an insight. I just wanted to be on the record of saying I have read a book. <laughs> so uh, around all of this time, nineteen early 1940s to mid-1940s, this is around the time Burroughs meets Joan Vollmer. Mm-hmm. So Joan Vollmer was born near Albany, New York in 1923 to upper-middle-class parents. She had, you know, a nice charmed life she went to bernard college Mm. so she's also a very educated young woman for the time yeah and joe marries a law student named paul adams when she's around 20 and after her husband enlisted in the army joan moved to new york city and gave birth to their daughter julie while he was stationed in tennessee and Joan was a poet herself. She studied journalism at columbia university and she was totally of the beat movement. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. although her work wasn't published, she was probably one of the most prominent female figures in the group as at the time. Yeah. So she's super smart, really educated, fairly lawless. She had tons of lovers. She drank. She did tons of drugs. She floated around. She like argued about philosophy and bars. Pretty <laughs> much everything you'd expect from this badass wild 20 year old lady with an infant right god if you just take away the devastation of drug addiction this is just such a romantic i know you would love it i know i know i know i picked this story for you i just fantasize about being like that so joan met everyone you know jack kerouac ginsburg Uh and william s burroughs she met everyone through a woman named edie parker who was dating jack kerouac at the time and the two women rented a series of apartments together that would become the epicenter of the early beat movement in new york city on october 14th 1944 lucian carr stabbed david Cameron to death uh and this is just briefly according to Wikipedia, Lucien Carr and Jack Kerouac had attempted to stow away on a France-bound ship earlier in the day and failed. They had this nutty-ass idea about walking across France together in Uh character. So Kerouac wanted to pretend to be a Frenchman (laughs) in France, which I feel like, I don't know how that would work out for him. And then Carr wanted to pretend to be a deaf mute who was his best friend and they wanted to travel across France. <laughs> just wanted to do that yeah. i would do that with you if you were down <laughs> but they were kicked off the ship at the last minute yeah. so they get kicked off the ship at the port and they decide to go get drunk in the west end instead that sounds pretty good so they're drinking and doing whatever and according to Carr, basically he and kerouac parted ways and Carr ran into David Kammerer. So they decided to take a walk together, just the two of them, in Riverside Park. So Mm -hmm. they're friends, but definitely there's always some tension between them. But there's kind of tension between a lot of them. They're always kind of getting drunk and fighting and stuff. Yeah, right. 
Carr later told police that Kammerer made a pass at him like he usually did. But this time, they were alone, it was dark, and when Carr rejected him, Kammerer, who was physically larger than Carr, assaulted him and pinned him down. Mm -hmm. So Carr said that he panicked and he stabbed David Kammerer with a Boy Scout knife that he had in his pocket from his St. Louis days. Yeah. Carr then said he dragged the body down to the Hudson River threw it in, and ran over to Burroughs' apartment to try to figure out what to do. So <laughs> Burroughs, like... Man, he stabbed him with a Swiss Army knife to death? Yeah. Those are not big. Those are small. How many times did he stab him? Uh, I don't know. It didn't say. Oh, my God. Maybe they used to make him more deadly back in the day. They might have. Um, so he runs over to Burroughs' apartment, and he's like, what do I do? I have no idea what to do. And Burroughs helps him. He has some bloody cigarettes of David Cameron's in his possession so uh burrows wait he had bloody cigarettes yeah like he's freaked out right he's like uh -huh. grabbed some stuff off of his body before he dumped it in the hudson he doesn't know what to do there's all this evidence there's blood okay, so he's saying okay. what do i do and william s burrows like snatches the cigarettes and flushes them down the toilet and he says go get a lawyer and turn yourself in mm -hmm. that's good advice right but Carr wasn't into that advice oh, no. so he decided to find jack kerouac <laughs> Uh, so, we gotta go to France, man. Let's do this whole deaf Frenchman <laughs> adventure thing. Right. So Kerouac and Carr, they try to get rid of all the evidence and they run around town trying to figure out what to do. They end up doing as much as they can and going to the movies to try to brush off the willies or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And basically the whole thing was just way too crazy for them to really handle. And yeah, right. Lucian Carr turned himself in two days later. Yeah, yeah. So Kerouac and Burroughs were arrested for their involvement in the cover-up of the murder. Mm -hmm. So Edie Parker's parents agreed to bail Kerouac out of jail on the condition that he marry their daughter. Uh, that marriage was eventually annulled, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe that's what they were gunning for. I mean, people could get out of jail. It's just the weirdest thing, man. It's like either we'll talk about this later, yeah. but at one point Burroughs is sentenced to go spend the summer with his family, like by a judge. <laughs> you know, they just used to be like, get out of here. Yeah, go get married. <laughs> yeah, right. Was Kerouac famous at this point? No, no, none of them were. Oh, so they're not even like, I want you to marry this famous author. They're like, I just want you to marry the guy who's in jail. Like, that, that you've just... been sleeping with, right? Oh, okay, I guess that makes some sense. Yeah, for the time. So Evie Parker's parents bail out Jack Kerouac. Mm -hmm. Burroughs' dad comes down to New York from St. Louis and bails him out, which will become a major theme in William S. Burroughs' life. <laughs> and then yeah. Lucian Carr was sentenced to 20 years in prison and got out in two. Yeah. So they totally got away with that. <laughs> Man. Uh, so yeah, that's up for debate. I mean, that's been... that particular case i've read mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. and david kammerer is not around to tell his version of the story yeah and everybody that is involved in the story as like a character witness or somebody who would talk about their interactions you know between lucian yeah. carr and david kammerer they're all gonna be on lucian carr's side those are all his friends right you know and all you have like about the account of the night, the only mm -hmm. account you have is Lucian Carr. So right. the idea is he might have been acting in self-defense and that there's this history of this type of inappropriate behavior from David Kemmer. Yeah. But there are definitely people around New York who said that they never saw that type of behavior and that 
like uh-huh, Lucian uh-huh. Carr just could have been violent towards him. Yeah. Um, so nobody really knows. But he remained friends with the 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 big three. Lucian Carr? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's around forever. Okay. He becomes a literary agent at one point. So in 1945, Edie Parker and Joan Vollmer rented an apartment together along with Edie's new husband, Jack Kerouac, and Joan's infant daughter, Julie. Then Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac decided to play matchmaker Mm -hmm. and set up Burroughs with Joan. They thought they would be a great match. Even though she's married to a soldier. She's married to a soldier. And so far, Burroughs is like, oh, I'm completely gay. So it's very like, (laughs) but I think everybody's really fluid. And that's like when they really talk about like sexual, you know, liberation. It's like very... This is a great example of this. Of totally. Just orientation shifting in this space. And, you know, I don't know. She's married. She's got his kids. <laughs> yeah. So a few months after the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Burroughs showed up to Joan and Edie's apartment on 115th Street with all his belongings in a suitcase. Apparently, when Joan opened her apartment door and saw Burroughs standing there with all his stuff, she said, Welcome to your destiny. Okay. So. Pretty epic, huh? <laughs> uh, now, they were both... Oh, no poetry. <laughs> they were both into getting blasted uh-huh. and sleeping around. Mm. Um, Burroughs had a sexual and romantic relationship with Joan, but he still had a ton of male lovers, and yeah. um, Joan was just super down for doing it with whoever she was... Having, having a ball. Okay, great. Uh, the apartment on 115th Street was basically a wild-ass den. There were junkies and artists and mm-hmm. poets and lazy-ass hangers-on and a lot of thieves. Really crazy <laughs> amount of like thieves and people would rob people. <laughs> Doing some poetry, beating on some bongos. Right, beating on the bongos, whatever. Pretty much everything you think it could be, it was that. Yeah, yeah. And one day, everyone in the apartment is high on Benny's. That's benzedrine. So at the time, it's like a, an amphetamine. So mm-hmm. everybody's all jacked up on Benny's. Yeah. And they're all at the apartment. And Joan's husband, Paul Adams, shows up fresh from fighting in Germany from World War II. Oh, no. And he took one look at what Joan was up to, threw a fit, and then filed for divorce. Did he take the daughter? Left Julie with her mother and a room full of junkies. Oh, my God. And then... While Joan was addicted to Benzedrine, Burroughs was getting deep into heroin. Very into it. Okay. So yeah. to support his habit. Apparently that does happen with heroin. I've, <laughs> I've, I've heard a thing or two that that happens to be a, you know, a pattern. One of those things. Yeah. So to, to support his habit, Burroughs kept getting involved with petty theft and like selling drugs, trying to get drugs, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And his parents always bailed him out of jail. After he was bailed out of jail for robbing bums to pay for heroin, which was kind of a stronger charge, the judge sentenced him to spend the summer with his wealthy family in St. Louis, which for him was like a death sentence. Uh uh But he ended up sobering up in St. Louis, and he reunited with a friend named Kells Elvins and got some money from his family to buy 50 acres of land in Texas to plant cotton. So he just disappears from the scene for a while. Mm Meanwhile, back in New York City, everyone left the apartment on 115th, disbanding and leaving Joan alone with her daughter, Julie. Mm. Joan was heavily addicted to Benny's at this point, and she was eventually evicted from the apartment. 
So without a place to live, Joan sent Julie to live with her aunts in Long Island and moved in with a friend of a friend somewhere in Manhattan. Uh-huh. Um, and Does she, Julie live happily ever after? Boy, you don't be asking questions. Oh my God, I'm worried about this kid. Yeah, me too. <laughs> the whole time I was reading this, I was like, what is happening? I yeah. kept trying to figure out what was going on with this yeah. kid. Because she just is there and then not there. Yeah. Anyway, basically... Joan was so deep in her benzedrine addiction at this point, she didn't even recognize Jack Kerouac when he came to visit her, Mm -hmm. which is like one of her best friends and ex-roommate, right? So she's really kind of off the rails. Eventually, she had a psychotic break from the drug use and was found wandering around Times Square where she was arrested and sent to a mental hospital uh, at Bellevue Hospital. Yeah. Ooh, that's the super famous institution out there. Yeah, it is. It is. So... Allen Ginsberg finds out about her being put in this mental hospital and he writes Burroughs a letter to let him know. Mm-hmm. And Burroughs leaves Texas and flies straight back to New York to bust her out of Bellevue. After she was released, they grabbed Julie from Long Island and headed back to Texas. No. Together. So here are some excerpts of a letter that Joan sent to Edie at the time. Okay. I've had a really mad year, although now perhaps I've come to a resting point. Maybe. Was it after you left? I think so. That Bill Burroughs, of course, finally got nailed for a couple of forged prescriptions. The only way I could get him out on bail, unfortunately, was to call a psychiatrist. And he promptly informed Bill's family, which led to a good deal of unpleasantness. Finally, though, in June, the damn thing came to trial. And he was lucky enough that he got a suspended sentence on the condition that he go home to St. Louis for three months. That was pretty good, of course, but it left me in rather a spot, emotionally as well as financially. I was completely broke, so I left Julie with my aunts on Long Island and stayed with a nice kid named McCarthy. I finally got a lawyer who was obviously no good, but Whitey insisted on having him. In the meantime, however, I was taking so much Benzedrine that I got way off the beam, with the result that I finally landed in the Bellevue Psycho Ward. Dad came down and got Julie. Anyway, I was all clear again in a couple of days, but it took me a week and a half to convince those stupid doctors that I wasn't completely mad. Everything was timed nicely, though, because just before I got out last, Bill got back into town. His family agreed to set him up in a small way, provided he'd live away from New York. So he had planned to go to Texas, where he'd spend part of the summer. As soon as I got out of the nuthouse, we drove down the Rio Grande, stayed a while with some friends of Bill's, and finally bought a nice, broken-down, 99-acre farm a little north of Houston. We stayed down there for a while, starting repairs on the house, and then headed north 10 days before Christmas. We drove to New York, where we stayed for a few days, and then Bill went to St. Louis, and I came up here to get Julie. She and I are going back to Texas by train on January 2nd, and Bill will be back down there by then. This is all very vague and sketchy, but do write me back and let me have your news. Although we're not married, Bill got a divorce, but I haven't yet. Make it Mrs. W.S. Burroughs, New Waverly, Texas. Mm, She's all in. Yeah. So for the next five years, they lived on that ranch. They had no electricity, no running water, and they were 
growing weed <laughs> attempt to sell at wholesale. So nice. he had this little plot of land yeah. in Texas that was like growing cotton and vegetables and stuff, mm -hmm. but he also had the weed ranch. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's what they were up to. They had a junkie friend named Herbert Hunk join them from New York City to help out. And they're now clean junkie friend Herbert, mm -hmm. who had joined the um, crew a few years back at the apartment on 115th Street when he was 15 years old. Oh, man. <laughs> A child. Yeah. So he came out. He, he came out to help them mm -hmm. grow this weed. Joan basically got high on bennies and picked berries. And Burroughs practiced his marksmanship with a pistol, sometimes shooting scorpions and rats and sort of vaguely running the cotton farm. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, just a soft grip on the whole, this is a functioning farm type of operation. Right, right. I think Herbert was doing most of the work. And he's not writing during any of this. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, but Joan was pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> so Joan was pregnant during most of this mm -hmm. early time. And then in July of 1947 in Waverly, Texas, she gave birth to William Burroughs III mm -hmm. or Billy. Mm -hmm. So after the baby was born, Neil Cassidy showed up to the ranch with Allen Ginsberg. Now, Neil wasn't a writer. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. It sounds really famous, but maybe I'm just thinking of like Butch Cassidy. Yeah, I don't know maybe. Why that sounds familiar to me. He's not a writer, but he's a prominent figure in the beat movement, mm -hmm. and he was really close friends with Jack Kerouac, and I think a big figure in his works and uh -huh. stuff like that. So Allen Ginsberg was head over heels in love with Neil Cassidy, mm -hmm. but as they were on this ranch visiting the new baby, Neil Cassidy was just doing it with a bunch of chicks in Texas. He was just constantly <laughs> yeah. sleeping with women. So yeah. Allen Ginsberg left the ranch <laughs> yeah, in a yeah. jealous rage and went back to New York City. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> Neil... The ladies in Texas are pretty hot. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's like, forget this. I'm going back to New York. Yeah. But Neil Cassidy stuck around to help Joan, Herbert, and Burroughs run their weed crop to New York City. Nice. Okay, so he's a drug runner too and a ladies man. He could do anything. Yeah. So Joan took the kids with her on a train to New York City to meet them and the guys followed in a Jeep completely stuffed with marijuana <laughs> driving 3,000 miles in three days without stopping for anything but gas. Damn. So when they got to New York City, they had to bust Joan out of Bellevue again because... When she got there, she yeah. was acting kind of erratically because of the bennies and stuff at yeah. the train station. And police were watching her and they thought she might be trying to abandon her kids at the train station. Oh. So they snatched the kids and put her back in Bellevue. Oh, that's a rough look. Yeah. Well, they get there. They bust Joan out of Bellevue again, grab the kids, and they all go down to Lower Manhattan to sell the weed. But they hadn't properly dried or cured it. <laughs> yeah, right. Because they're just a bunch of assholes. <laughs> they didn't do anything right. So the yeah, entire yeah. crop was wasted. It's like nobody would buy point. it. Yeah, yeah, it's like moldy. It's not cured properly. All stems and seeds. Yeah, so no one would buy it. They ended up selling the entire Jeep full for $100. Oh, no. That's like a year's worth of work. <laughs> I mean, God, that is just the funniest, like, slacker stoner move. <laughs> Bro, we got this. We got a, we got a thousand tons. Tons of weed. I know. He's like, we got it, man. <laughs> Let's go to the Lower East Side and sell it. We're going to be rich. We're going to be rich, man. Oh, Did man, not work out. It's green because it's moldy. <laughs> that sucks. 
So Burroughs and Joan <laughs> go back to Texas, obviously dejected. They sell the ranch. They get thrown in jail for having sex in a car. And then after they were released, they moved the family to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a <laughs> lot just, of stuff. I don't know. That just hit me. It's just like, where, where can we chill? How about we go to the most absolute party crazy city in the world? Well, they did that because they thought they could get good drugs. Yeah. Okay. And they can't go back to New York. <laughs> Okay, so Burroughs mm-hmm. buys a house in Algiers near the Mississippi. And, you know, although he claimed to have purchased the house himself, he says things in his letters about, oh, Joan and I bought a house. Da, 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 da. Right. It seems very likely that his father bought that house yeah, for him. Yeah. They also had set him up when he left for Texas with a $200 monthly stipend. Mm-hmm. So they were floating them for most of this time. Right. So in New Orleans, Joan gets polio and she has to start using a cane. One of her legs stops working as well. And basically, Joan just walked around in bare feet, eating bennies and doing weird stuff all day, neglecting the kids, but bathing and dressing up her 13 cats in fancy outfits. (laughs) Um, She also had insomnia, so she spent most of the nights hopped up on bennies, like cleaning the house, scrubbing the floors, and trying to catch lizards that were running around. Bathing the cats? Yes. (laughs) Giving a cat a bath is a whole other level, man. 13 cats baths. Jesus. Yeah. So then, yeah. And then she's all hopped Uh, up on these bennies, so she's got all these ideas, right? So she's mm -hmm. cleaning, scrubbing the floors, trying to catch these lizards, doing things like that. I mean, she's acting like, uh, you know, an ancient witch. Like Grey Gardens or something. (laughs) Yeah. What's her. How old is she? She's 24. (laughs) She's 24 years old. She's really young. Yeah. Yeah. And Burroughs at this point, I believe he's around 33 or 34. He's basically wasting away, spending most of his time in the bathroom doing heroin. Mm -hmm. And when he was out of the bathroom, he was running around the city with a pistol on his hip. Mm -hmm. And when he was at the house, he was basically just focused on terrorizing the 13 cats. (laughs) What do you mean by that? He writes a lot in his work about torturing cats. Oh, he's like, oh, literally torturing them? I don't know if it's exactly like, it's they don't die, uh-huh. but he's messing with them and scaring them psychologically, or like cutting them and burning them and stuff. No, like uh, he describes taking a cat and like smacking it in the head, and then the cat runs away, and he's trying to stalk the cat. I mean, I don't know. It seems pretty drastic. <laughs> All right, and then the gun thing—is he looking for trouble? Is he getting in fights? And, he's like, a shootouts? big fan of open carry. He uh-huh. loves his guns. He's got tons of guns. He's a really good marksman. Mm-hmm. Like he's into shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also maybe a little paranoid or like wanting to for personal protection. Right. He's kind of a libertarian esque dude. Mm-hmm. And at this point their relationship is very strained. Mm -hmm. You know, Joan is getting sick of the heroin stuff. Sometimes he's just, she says he's just boring. Um, He's just out of it all the time and absent. Yeah. They're sleeping in separate rooms. And, you know, their friends see them in some ways as being well-matched, but in another way, in the sense that they're driving each other towards death. Right, you know? and they're both drug addicts, but they're just like completely different types of drugs. Yeah, right. They seem like there is a connection between them, but there's this fundamental neglect on Burroughs' part in uh-huh. a lot of ways, and we'll read some of their letters and stuff like this, yeah. but here's some descriptions of their life in New Orleans. All right. So this is an excerpt from Kerouac's biography, Memory Babe, in that it says, 
If Jack was disappointed in Bill's listlessness, he was shocked by Joan's diseased appearance and psychotic behavior. For the past four years, she had been using Benzedrine constantly, and now she consumed from three to ten tubes of paper per day. All the while, she'd been growing gaunt and hard-faced, and a recent case of polio had left her with a limp. She puttered about the house and yard day and night, seldom talking except to answer some remark made by Bill. Her devotion to him was as fierce as her concern for her children. Does that mean non-existent? Well, it's odd because he says that, but basically what people say about her and her kids is it's not positive. So I don't understand. She seems devoted to, you know, being in custodianship of them or whatever that word is. Like she wants to be, she wants them with her, but that seems like it. Right. Like they had a house guest named Helen Hinkle and she says later in an interview, the household seemed to operate on the principle of total permissiveness. The children were allowed to go potty wherever they liked, whether it was on the dining room floor or the revereware in the kitchen. The little boy, not yet two, was beautiful with fine blonde hair, and the six-year-old girl was thin with filthy, matted hair. Apparently, they washed whenever they felt like it. Mm -hmm. Julia had nightmares and had formed the habit of chewing her left arm in the crook where there was a large scar. The state of the children was not negligence on Joan's part, Helen observed, but a deliberate attitude of leaving them largely to themselves. How is that not negligence? That she's aware of them, but her choice is to allow them to do anything they want. Okay. Sure. That's I, the way they characterize okay, it. Okay, great. <laughs> I mean, it sounds really awful. Yeah. But that's kind of the picture of what's going on in New Orleans at yeah. the time. Hi, I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold. If you are unfamiliar with my other podcast, I often cover stories from the television show Unsolved Mysteries. For the past five years, you've heard me talk about these cases on my own, but now's your chance to hear me have in-depth discussions about them with other people. I want to welcome you to my new project, The Path Went Chilly, where I will be discussing in depth with my two good friends and co-hosts cases that I've covered on The Trail Went Cold. Meet my co-hosts. First one up is Jules. Hi, I'm Jules from the podcast Riddle Me That True Crime, and I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling. I'm not a psychologist or a diagnostician, so don't get too excited. But I can't wait to analyze these cases with these two amazing humans. You've already met Robin. Now meet Dr. Ashley Wellman. Hi, I'm Ashley. I have a PhD in criminology, law, and society, and I specialize in trauma victims and survivors. I've spent a great deal of time working with families left behind after homicides with a cold case unit based out of Florida, and I'm also a professor of criminology. I'm so excited to be chatting with two of my best friends about the cases that everyone can't seem to get enough of. We hope in doing so that we will have a clearer perspective of what may have transpired. Oftentimes, Ashley will be totally in the dark. Jules and I will be telling Ashley a story she may not know much about, so all of her reactions are genuine. We hope you will join us as we attempt to heat up some ice-cold cases. The Pathwind Chili will be available every Thursday on all major podcast platforms. In 1949, New Orleans police arrested Burroughs with an unregistered gun in a stolen car during a drug raid. And they found some letters he had written to Kerouac with the logistics of selling the weed in New York City. Mm -hmm. So they had thought they had found this underground kingpin. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so it became this big deal. Instead of he's just trying to get heroin and he's just like, whatever, you know? Yeah, right. So they raided his house without a warrant and they found tons of heroin, needles, pot, and then all of these weapons. Mm-hmm. So Burrow's parents bailed him out once again and he was then sent to detox for heroin. And when he got out, the case against him looked so bad that he decided to bounce to Mexico with Joan and the kids before the trial date. Yeah. So here are the letters that they both wrote at the same time. Uh, Joan wrote one to Allen Ginsberg Mm -hmm. and then Burroughs wrote one to Kerouac and they're very different talking about exactly the same thing. So Joan writes to Ginsberg, I don't know where we'll go, probably either a cruise somewhere or a trip to Texas to begin with. After that, providing Bill beats the case, it's harder to say. New Orleans seems pretty much out of the question, as a second similar offense by Louisiana law would constitute a second felony and automatically draw seven years in the state pen. Texas is almost as bad as a second drunken driving conviction. I guess he already had one. (laughs) A second drunken driving conviction there would add up to about the same deal. New York is almost certainly out, largely because of family objections. What else is there really? Maybe Chicago? I don't know. It makes things rather difficult for Bill. As for me, I don't care where I live, so as long as it's with him. Oh, well, that's okay. So she's still loving him and just basically like he's guaranteed repeat offense. So we have to go somewhere where what a beautiful writer. Like her letters are so well crafted and they have a great sense of um, self in them. Yeah. Okay. And then this is Burroughs writing to Jack Kerouac. Uh My own plans are in a state of flux. We'll most likely be here. We have rented a house till cotton picking season. Then, quien sabe, I might take a trip through Mexico and Central America to view the Mayan antiquities. May stay down there and live cheap for a spell. May return to NY. May go to Angola. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) That's it. He's like, I don't know, man. Yeah, but do you see like the difference is Joan is talking about Bill. Right, she's talking about Bill and what's going to be best for him, and we can live here and there. But you know, we can't. He can't get another drug charge or gun charge or drunk driving. And he's just like, I think I'm going to go check out the ruins in South America. He doesn't say one thing about Joan. He doesn't yeah. even mention her name. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Just mm-hmm. that's the difference between their writing at the time, too. Yeah. At any rate, in September of 1949. Burroughs and Joan decide to head down to Mexico. And in two years, Joan would be dead. Now, Mexico City was cracking off in 1949. Yes. Brothels, clubs, cabaret theaters. The Mexican Revolution was over and it was in the midst of this blowout culture at the time. Oh, that sounds so fun. I've always wanted to go there so bad. Yeah, it sounds like it was a crazy time to be down there. They get down to Mexico City, they rent an apartment, and when they get down there... Joan can't find any bennies. They just don't have them in Mm. Mexico. So she had to swap her bennies for booze and started drinking tequila every morning at 8 a.m. Yikes. Burroughs liked Mexico at first. He wrote Kerouac uh, a letter, and in that letter he says, Mexico is very cheap. A single man could live good for $2 per day in Mexico City, liquor included. $1 per day anywhere else in Mexico. Fabulous whorehouses and restaurants, a large foreign colony, 
cockfights, bullfights, every conceivable diversion. I strongly urge you to visit. You won't make a mistake in visiting Mexico, one of the few places left where a man can really live like a prince. Everything I have seen so far has been much to my liking. A few examples. Drunks sleep on the sidewalk of the main drag. No cops bother them. Anyone who feels like it carries a gun. I read of several occasions where a drunken cop shooting at people in bars were themselves shot by armed civilians who don't take no shit from nobody. Medical treatment is extremely reasonable because the doctors advertise and cut prices. You can get a clap cured for $2.40 or buy penicillin and shoot it yourself. No regulations here curtailing self-medication. Needles and syringes can be bought anywhere. This is heaven on earth. <laughs> and I'm that's I'm obviously the, the drug mania is not to be taken lightly and you know that you know I I take that you know dear to my heart or whatever but damn that sounds fun. <laughs> I'm trying to go to Mexico City back then. It's just crazy because this story is just hitting so many like sweet little harmonies in my heart of you know New York City poet artist life and then New Orleans like all these places I've never lived that I've always wanted to live. Yeah, yeah. NYC, New Orleans and Mexico City, man. Damn. <laughs> I just want to do that, but not be, not be right. And like addict. you know, uh, Burroughs knew and acknowledged that it wasn't all great. He uh-huh. was super freaked out about the slums and the sheer poverty of the poor mm. areas. That's like way crazier than he had ever imagined. Yeah, I mean, none of my fantasizing or fetishizing of those places in those eras, you know, have any sort of like responsibility to them. Right, you know? right. I know, I know. Well, uh, at any rate, while Joan had swapped Benny's for tequila, Burroughs started out his time in Mexico completely sober. He lived off of his parents' two hundred dollars a month, and he also got a GI bill payment from enlisting. So he mm-hmm. didn't—I don't know how Damn. that worked. <laughs> so he got like I think a hundred dollars a month from that. He registered at the Mexico City College to study Aztec and Mayan history, and he retained a famous Mexican lawyer named Bernabe Gerardo to help him with his citizenship process. And Bernabe was known as being a total wild ass. (laughs) This is just one example of what he has done. During one trial, Gerardo asked the judge if he could hold a piece of evidence against his clients. It was a bounce check. So he says, hey man, can I hold that check? I just want to see it in my hand. And when the judge handed him the check, he shoved it in his mouth and swallowed it. Like destroy the evidence? Oh, guess your evidence is gone. In front of everybody. What evidence? The evidence I just ate? Good luck administering that to the court. How bold is that? Yeah, that's great. Super bold. Yeah. So things were trucking along, but by the end of the year in 1950, Burroughs was back on heroin. But he had written his first draft his first full draft of the novel junkie which is Mm. his first book Mm -hmm. in 1950 jack kerouac and neil cassidy came down to mexico to visit Mm -hmm. and kerouac wrote at the end of on the road his big famous book about mexico and he said quote we had finally found the magic land at the end of the road and we never dreamed the extent of the magic and Kerouac went so hard in Mexico that even Burroughs was worried about him. Oh, no. He wrote Kerouac after the visit, telling him to slow it down and not be such a crazy ass. Yeah, yeah. But 
you know, Burroughs was certainly one to talk. <laughs> yeah, right. And at this point, he and Joan were really deep into some dark stuff. Yeah. By the early 1950s, just a few months into their time in Mexico, Joe was fed up with Burroughs' extreme heroin addiction. And even though Joan was just in her mid-20s, she herself was falling apart physically from the drug and alcohol use. Yeah. She was walking with a cane. She had you know, sores on her body. She was not doing well. Yeah. At some point in early 1950, Burroughs' old Texas farming partner, the one who helped him with the cotton field, mm-hmm. um, his name, Elvins, yeah. he came down to visit and his wife, had a lot of stuff to say about that visit. So this is a quote from her. In 1950, Kels and I rented a modern apartment in Mexico City. It was there where the Burroughses visited us for the first time. William and Joan were so drunk that every word they used was quite incoherent. Joan was a big woman, shapeless with a puff face and impressive blue eyes with the lost expression of the old doll's glass eyes. Her expression reflected everything but saw nothing. She seemed very receptive and shy, like a kind of mental patient who was free in the afternoon. Burroughs had a cadaverous appearance, thin lips, bad teeth, eyes like death. Bill and Joan sat on the sofa in front of us. Suddenly, Joan's bag fell onto the floor and a lot of pills of many colors and shapes spread on the carpet. Clumsily, Joan crawled around the carpet, picking up her things with both hands and smiling and muttering to herself as she returned all this stuff to her bag. That is an image. Yeah. Wow. Damn. That lady can write too. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that just sticks with you. Yeah. You know, it's and it's interesting because this is just anecdotally, but yeah. a lot of the people that write about Joan that don't know her. Yeah that's usually what they write. She's vacant, mm-hmm. you know, not all there. But in her circle, even at this time, she was known for being brilliant, like a brilliant conversationalist and really interesting to her friends. Right, who are probably also on the same drugs. They are, but like people who don't know her say she doesn't speak mm. and that she doesn't know what's going on. The people who know her are like, oh, she gives everyone shit. Uh-huh. She's really like witty. You know, she understands everything that's going on. She's kind of the boss in her relationship with Burroughs when they're kind of trading barbs and stuff uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. And I just thought it was kind of interesting. It's, there are people who describe her who don't know her. And almost every time it's like, oh, she's a glass eyed doll. Yeah, right. But the people who do know her, they... And her letters. I mean, at this point, I mean, this is just... Yeah, she's writing all that beautiful yeah, prose. Yeah. This is five, This woman that she's describing is the same woman who just wrote, you know, these beautiful, well-written letters to her friends, like yeah. articulate and, you know, so I just think that's kind of an interesting duality totally. going on, you know? Yeah. And there was still a kind of magic in her their relationship between Burroughs and Joan Lucian Carr came down to visit again after mm-hmm. he got out of jail and he talks about this game that he's he witnessed Joan playing with Burroughs that they did kind of commonly. They would each take out a piece of paper and divide the paper into nine squares mm-hmm. and they'd sit across the room from each other and they would draw an image in each square and then at the end they'd show each other the paper and they would draw the same images in about half the squares that is cool. Like they had this telepathic communication thing. Yeah. Oh, we should play that. I was thinking the same yeah, thing. Yeah, totally, 
you know, and they were still having sex. You know, uh-huh. there's this letter that Burroughs wrote to Allen Ginsberg and Joan wrote little footnotes in the margin. Mm-hmm. And he and Ginsburg were in this argument of like, Ginsburg felt it was unethical for Burroughs to be with Joan because Burroughs didn't want to be with a woman. So they would be arguing about this in letters. And Burroughs' response is typically something along the lines of, she knew what she was getting into. I knew what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. No one is doing anything to anyone. I've never lied. Yeah, And they're still together. And Ginsburg is kind of, saying he doesn't think that Burroughs is treating Joan correctly or that Joan will ever be happy with him, totally happy with him. Uh So they're in the middle of this argument. Yeah. And there's this letter that Burroughs writes kind of as a rebuttal. And he says, I have been laying women for the past 15 years and haven't heard any complaints from the woman either. And then there's a little asterisk and she writes a footnote and the footnote says, correct, with an exclamation point. (laughs) And then after that, he continues, what does that prove except I was hard up at the time? Laying a woman, so far as I am concerned, it's okay if I can't score for a boy. But laying one woman or a thousand merely emphasizes the fact that a woman is not what I want. Better than nothing, of course. Like a tortilla is better than no food. (laughs) But no matter how many tortillas I eat, I still want a steak. And then she writes another little footnote in here. Around the 20th of the month, things get a bit tight and he lives on tortillas. (laughs) (laughs) Because he pretty much, he was really famous for like, you know, going to male prostitutes in Mexico when they ran out of money. Yeah. Oh my God. So she's hilarious. She's pretty funny. That's what they all say about her. You know what I mean? So these descriptions are so interesting. It's like basically a lot of them are the wives of the men that come down to visit and they say, this is what I've seen in Joan. It's people who just are really disconnected from the beat culture or anything like that. They're just like, she's catatonic, but she's pretty funny and she does crazy stuff. (laughs) So a few months later, in May of 1951, 37-year-old Burroughs met and fell in love with 21-year-old Adelbert Lewis Marker. So Lewis Marker was young, he's thin, and wearing those like big Elvis Costello glasses, blonde. Way before El- Elvis Costello's on the scene. Right, but those big thick black rim glasses. Yeah, this El- Elvis was really wearing his glasses. Right. Uh, according to, did you call him Elvis? Well, Elvis Costello. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, his name is Lewis. <laughs> no, I know. That didn't even sound right. Calling Elvis Costello Elvis. You're right. That did not sit right. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, according to the essay by James W. Grauerholtz, Lewis was thought of by some of friends in their circle in Mexico City as being dull, somewhat of a moocher, a poor conversationalist. And one guy called him a quote unquote non-person. <laughs> <laughs> but he's 21 and hot and Burroughs is like, this is it. Right. So Burroughs received some money from the sale of his failed Texas uh, ranch. And so he decided to take Lewis Marker on an all expense paid trip to South America to go kind of explore mm-hmm. psych- psychedelic plants and stuff like that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Eat some steak, if you know what I mean. Right. And so uh, Lewis was not at trees. all interested in Burroughs sexually, uh-huh. but they had an arrangement that Lewis would have sex with Burroughs twice a week. 
uh, and off they went to explore South America. (laughs) Uh, Now, this is where, like, one of the stories of Joan being totally crazy and Uh adventurous, if not, I don't know, suicidal. Uh, In August of 1951, a little later in the summer, while Lewis Marker and Burroughs were still in South America, Lucian Carr and Allen Ginsberg drove down for another visit. So they're always coming down to see him. I would too. Yeah, right? And they're kind of bummed that Burroughs isn't there, but they love Joan. So Mm -hmm. they spend a week with Joan and the kids who were seven and four at the time. Mm -hmm. And they decided that they wanted some good weed. And so Joan said, I know somebody in Guadalajara. And they end up taking this epic, insanely drunken road trip to Guadalajara. Basically, Joan and Lucian were so drunk that they both had to drive together as one person. Because <laughs> they're both seeing doubles. Right? You keep your left eye open. I'll keep my right eye open. We can do this. Like basically one of them was doing the brake and the steering and the other one was so drunk. They were lying down on the ground and doing the clutch and the gas. <laughs> and the whole time, oh, Alan, no. remember, Alan- <laughs> remember when the Sandra Bullock movie came out? Everyone started doing like the bird cage. What was it called? Bird, bird box, box challenge yeah. or whatever. And people were actually driving blind. Oh Yeah. <laughs> so stupid <laughs> this would be a hilarious slash definitely don't do it version of that right the Joan and Lucian challenge yeah. yeah so while they're doing this they're going down these hairpin turns like on the cliff like think of you when we drove up Big Sur or something like that Yeah, or in Sicily or really any other country besides the US right so they're yeah. going to Guadalajara for Mexico City yeah. and they're just doing these cliff edge hairpin turns in this car they're both so drunk they're double driving and the whole time in the back Allen Ginsberg and these two small children are screaming at the top of their lungs. Like Allen Ginsberg was just like, stop. <laughs> like, and they're just dominating him, like just yeah. going. And she thinks it's the best. You know, right. they have She's this really, a great time. Yeah, they had a great time. Ginsberg using all that practice, doing his primal screams. He's, He's bringing that all to the forefront. Yeah, terrified. The but, kids are just pissing and shitting everywhere. Okay, sorry. Uh, but everybody... You know, despite the super fun time, they spent this week together. (laughs) What? Super fun time. Okay. okay. Right. They're having this super fun time. They spend the week together. But despite all that, everybody can just see that Joan is in really rough shape. At this point, I think she's 27 or Mm -hmm. around 27. Mm -hmm. And one friend who ran into her in August, right after the Guadalajara trip, describes her like this. I saw Joan a few days before she died. I met her in the street and she shook her head pridefully in that way she had. And I put my arms around her because she looked so awful. I was badly shaken. Joan was almost a beauty. She carried herself a little awkwardly, swinging one arm more than the other. She had an incurable blood disease. She had open running sores and knew she was dying. She was thin haired, had lost some of her hair. I'm not going to make it, she said. Mm, Damn. So at the end of the trip to Guadalajara, Lucian and Ginsburg basically begged Joan to come back with them to New York City. They just thought this is not going well for her and she's deteriorated so fast. Yeah, she needs medical attention. Right. She needs medical attention, intervention. You know, everything that she's doing with Burroughs is Mm -hmm. deteriorating her at a much faster pace. Yeah. Yeah. Did... uh. 
Did they score the weed in, in Guadalajara? I think they scored a lot of things in Guadalajara. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But Joan declined to go back to New York City, and the guys left on September 1st, 1951. Yeah. Meanwhile, Burroughs and Marker had come to the end of their brief and transactional love affair, mm-hmm. deciding to call it quits and head home. So Burroughs arrived back to Mexico City in early September, right between a couple of massive hurricanes. So it was dark and rainy, and the streets were flooded up to three feet in places around their neighborhood. It was a historical storm at the time. Damn. On September 6th, 1951, William S. Burroughs wanted to sell a gun. Burroughs was out of cash after his months-long trip with Lewis Marker and wanted to sell a gun to a student he knew from Mexico City College. So he didn't want to sell it at his own house because he thought it was too shady. Mm-hmm. So he basically bullied like another expat that lived in the neighborhood uh, into letting him sell it at his house. Okay, all right. So this guy, Eddie Woods felt weird about saying no he thought he couldn't say no to burroughs he's like the boss of the neighborhood uh so he agreed to have burroughs over for a drink and this possible gun sale yeah burroughs and joan got toasted at least joan for sure uh meaning drunk and then burroughs put the pistol in a handbag and they both headed over to the friend's apartment that was above a local expat bar called the bounty mm-hmm. they got there around 3 p.m The buyer never showed up. So Joan Burroughs, Lewis Marker, who was still a friend, and Eddie Woods settle in preparing to drink and hang out for the night. They were going to drink this favorite drink of the Burroughs. It's gin mixed with this bright green lime soda you can get at the bodegas down there. It's probably bomb. (laughs) So at this point, it was early evening. And according to Eddie Woods, He and Lewis Marker were both completely sober at this point. In later interviews, William S. Burroughs talks about like how it was a wild, raging party. But the people that were there were like, we hadn't even started yet. It was actually early. You know, there wasn't a lot of drinking going on. So apparently, Lewis Marker... Eddie Woods, sober, right? Yeah. And Burroughs was always really hard to read when it came to booze, so both men said they weren't actually sure how drunk he was. Mm -hmm. He kind of is quiet, Mm -hmm. you know? But everyone could agree that Joan was fairly drunk and chatty. She Mm -hmm. came into the room with a drink she had gotten from the bar, like she had already been Yeah, she was in it. And the way the party was set up... There were people about, like I said, about 20 feet away in an adjoining apartment. So more people came over. Yeah, they were all all starting to party. There was Uh like another apartment over here. That guy had friends over. They were all friends with each other. And in this room, there were just the four of them. Mm. So even though the buyer for the gun never showed, Mm -hmm. Burroughs goes and grabs the bag with the pistol in it. He takes the bag, he opens it up, And he pulls the pistol out of the bag and puts it on the table in front of him. He then sits across from Joan on a chair. Mm -hmm. What happens next is famously debated. According to court transcripts and later interviews, this is how everything went down. Mm -hmm. So allegedly, Burroughs picked up the pistol and said something like, Joni, let me show the boys what a great shot old Bill is. I guess it's about time for our William Tell Act. 
Then Joan picked up a glass half full of gin and lime soda and put it on her head. She then closed her eyes, turned her head and said, I can't watch this. You know I can't stand the sight of blood. Burroughs, yeah. Burroughs then stood about 10 feet away, turned and shot her directly in the head. So she fell to the ground and at first Burroughs and other people thought she was joking around until they saw the little hole in the front of her head. It hadn't started to bleed yet. Mm -hmm. And Lewis Marker stands up and he says, I think you shot her, Bill. Burroughs then throws himself over Joan's body trying to wake her up. He just snaps. They can't get him off of her. So, you know, they run to go get help. Joan was actually still alive when she was taken by ambulance to the hospital at 730, but she died within the hour. Yeah. Now, Burroughs initially told police the William Tell version of events that Joan put the glass on her head so he could shoot it off and he accidentally shot her in the temple. After being told Joan had died, Burroughs just lost it in the lobby. He was screaming. He was pulling Mm -hmm. out his hair. And then while this is going on, according to one of the friends at the party, the police then flooded the apartment and they planted empty bottles of booze, garbage. They spilled ashtrays on the floor, kind of making the party look more dramatically scandalous than it actually was. Then they took all these pictures that were all leaked to the press. And then they started their investigation from that point. What was the point of doing that? I don't know. I can't tell, but they all say uh it. They all said that the police did it. I don't really understand why. Was it to make it like more, I don't know, flashy for the photographs in the newspaper? I think it's more likely to get a conviction maybe if it was like really, really drunken, negligent, vice-ridden party. Maybe it's easier to make the case that like this was, these are bad people. Yeah. You know, if you're a, assa- it's like a character assassination thing as mm-hmm. opposed to like a gentleman who accidentally dropped a gun and it went off, you uh-huh. know, uh-huh. that's what would be my guess. Okay. So shortly after his first confession, Burroughs' lawyer, Burnaby Gerardo, found Burroughs in and prison. Ate him. <laughs> right in jail and ate him. Found Burroughs yeah. in jail and he's like, dude, you have to change your story. And then he tells him, say that while you're examining the gun, you dropped it and it went off killing Joan. So when police come to get Burroughs' second statement, that's what he tells police. So they take his second statement and Burroughs was thrown into a penitentiary that had the nickname the Black Palace of La Cumberry. (laughs) It's a good nickname. Yeah, I thought so. In jail now, Bernabe Gerardo coached Burroughs into describing dropping the pistol in a certain way so it was more likely to match up with the ballistics expert that he had Mm -hmm. bribed. And Burroughs just sticks fully with the second story. Four days later, William S. Burroughs' older brother Mortimer flew into Mexico City, bailed him out, paid off Gerardo, including the $300 bribe the, uh, for the ballistics expert, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then went to go hang out in a hotel. Gerardo, for his part, got Burroughs' murder charge reduced to manslaughter, and William S. Burroughs walked out on bail, spending only 13 days in jail. Wow. Which Gerardo bragged about for like years afterwards as being the, the most amazing thing he ever did. Well, because then he went out and became a famous author. 
And the guy's like, nah, if it wasn't for me, he'd be in jail. I think he doesn't care about the author part. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, William S. Burroughs, the writer? No, no, no. I'm talking about the heroin addict who shot that lady. Yeah. I mean, he's he's talking about himself. I get it. I get it. Uh, After Burroughs left jail, he met Joan's parents at the American embassy and handed over Julie and Billy. Joan was buried on September 9th in the American cemetery in Mexico City without a headstone or marker. Because no one ever came forward to claim the body, in 1993, authorities removed her remains to make space, putting them in a bag and placing the bag somewhere in the corner of an outbuilding. That is so tragic. Joan's parents ended up taking both kids out of the country. They headed back to Albany, New York, but they stopped first in St. Louis to give Burroughs' parents the option of taking Billy. They took Billy, and the kids were then separated for the first time in their lives. Oh, Billy Jr. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Man. Okay, that's sad. So Julie grew up in Albany with her grandparents and never spoke to her half-brother or anyone from the Burroughs family again. Billy died in 1981 at the age of 34. So he basically followed his dad's footsteps. He wrote Um, and he drank, mm -hmm. um, but he did not have the same constitution as his dad to be able to sustain any of that. Um, So he had to have a liver transplant at the age of 29, and then he died five years later. Wow, from drug and alcohol Mm -hmm. complications. At some point in his life, Billy actually wrote about hanging out in Chinatown with Allen Ginsberg as uh-huh. an adult. Uh, and Allen Ginsberg told him that his mother always had a death wish and that he had a morgue picture of Joan if Billy really wanted to see it. And Billy declined. Okay, I guess everyone just has to be like literally the world's heaviest, most freaking intense poet at all times. Yeah, he's like, I mean, I was like, Ginsburg, get out of here. Don't tell a kid that. So after the trial, Burroughs remained in Mexico for a while. He had to stay there um, for the sentencing trial, Mm -hmm. but that had just been delayed over and over and over again. So he was living in the same apartment building, but in a different apartment in Mexico City. Burroughs... Still totally obsessed over Lewis Marker, who ultimately stopped having sex with him altogether. But despite this, Burroughs continued to write letters to Ginsburg and Kerouac, claiming to be in this reciprocal romantic relationship with Lewis Marker. Mm -hmm. Not the case. Burroughs shot up heroin, wrote, and waited for his sentencing trial. In 1952, he published Junkie with Allen Ginsburg as his literary agent. Kerouac visited Burroughs in Mexico for a while right after this, and they ended up kind of having this blow-up fight over Kerouac's broke ass being a terrible house guest and smoking (laughs) too much weed and, like, borrowing a bunch of cash he never paid back and being messy. So Neil Cassidy came down to Mexico to pick up Kerouac and drove him to San Francisco because they were both going that way, and the author of On the Road actually never learned how to drive. All right. So Burroughs waited for a year for his trial. And towards the end of the year, his lawyer, Barnaby Gerardo, shot a 16-year-old twice in the leg for rear-ending him while he was driving, which I guess was common. Uh, But unfortunately, 
the kid died of tetanus four days later. And Burnaby was like, I shot him on the leg, in the leg on purpose so he wouldn't die. He was <laughs> yeah, not right. expecting to kill this kid. I was just trying to be a huge asshole bully, not a murderer. Right. So the kid died of tetanus and Burnaby Jurado fled to Brazil to avoid murder charges. So in December of 1952, after his lawyer had fled the country, Burroughs decided he was over it and skipped bail, forfeiting the $2,500 bond and heading back to the U.S. to stay with his parents in Palm Beach for Christmas. He was eventually sentenced in absentia to two years in prison, but he never served another day in prison for the murder of Joan Vollmer. Yeah. As for Burroughs, he never mentions Joan's death in either of his books set in Mexico. That would be junky and queer. Yeah. And he publicly denied her death was anything other than a gun dropping accident for decades. In 1965, for instance, he had an interview with Paris review and he said, quote, and I had that terrible accident with Joan Vollmer, my wife. I had a revolver that I was planning to sell to a friend. I was checking it over and it went off, killed her. A rumor started that I was trying to shoot a glass of champagne from her head, William Tell style, absurd and false. So basically what you had coming out of Mexico are these huge yeah. headlines with this like staged, crazy, wild party and like, you know, William Tell accident, you know, yeah. like this whole thing. And then you have William S. Burroughs himself telling this much sober more sober account of what happened. I mean, did he talk about missing her or loving her or... But I guess he's saying it was an accident, so he never showed remorse because that would imply that he did something wrong. Right. There's also some other stuff like he says, oh, I've never done anything like William Tell. That's absurd. I would never do anything with her. I've never done that before. Mm -hmm. But there was a friend named Ted Marak who later said in an interview that he saw them do the William Tell Act in the 1940s in Texas. Yeah. He said... Burroughs was a really good shot and they used to play these games with him by throwing fruit in the air so he could shoot it and that Ted himself was in the army and had a distinction for excellent marksmanship so he really knew mm -hmm. about shooting and he knew that Burroughs was great at shooting yeah. and he's seen them do that William Tell act before in, yeah. in Texas so I think that's really telling right course, but basically yeah. for years the William Tell thing was considered this Rumor, yeah, urban legend, or right? Something. And it and it would make sense that it would have that characterization, yeah. But later in life, when he was much older, Burroughs said some things in interviews that are really telling. He talks a lot about this thing called the ugly spirit, and it's something that like overtakes you and drives you to do something evil. So he, it's very odd, like. Mm -hmm. He kind of talks in circles around the event, but he starts introducing ideas like, oh, I wasn't in control of myself, mm -hmm, or there was mm -hmm. this thing that made me do it. I don't know why I did it. And I'll read you a few things that he said later in life in different interviews. Okay. So this is an interview he did in the 1980s with a man named Ted Morgan. Um, so this is what he said. Quote, I'll never quite understand what happened. Alan... Ginsburg was always making it out as a suicide on her part that she was taunting me to do this and I do not accept that cop out not at all not at all I left for South America with marker it was very shortly after we got back that Joan was killed the same week I started drinking 
I get back to the apartment, go up there, and Joan is there. And in order to deal with this terrible depression, I start drinking more and more and more. I knew something was going to happen. Something very bad was going to happen. I didn't know what it was. It was up in Healy's room, right above the Bounty Bar where this happened. It was like a living room, bedroom with a sofa. Eddie Woods and Marker were both there. The gun was in a holster in a suitcase. I intended to bring the gun there. I went everywhere with a gun at this point. I suddenly say, I guess it's about time for our William Tell Act. I see her. She's sitting there in a chair. She takes a glass and slowly puts it onto her head. It was a cheap gun, a 380 automatic. I knew that it might shoot low. She put the glass up on her head, and now she has the glass in her head, and I shoot it and hit, and dead. Of course, I was drunk. It was an utterly and completely insane thing to do. I mean, quite apart from the fact that if I'd hit the glass, it would have been terribly dangerous for the two people sitting there. Glass splinters would have been flying everywhere. So it was literally an insane thing to do. So he talks a lot about it, like, I was possessed. Yeah. I was insane. Yeah. I was whatever. But then he does say things in other interviews about the bullet felt drawn to her temple, you know, uh-huh. or he'll talk about how I knew the gun would shoot low. You know, I knew yeah. when I aimed it, it would be off. And if the gun shoots low, he's going to kill her. You know, right. there are aspects of the story that it's like the emphasis is put so heavily on these ideas of that he doesn't have any agency in this i know you know know. it's just basically like you know the heroin made me do it right the heroin you know whatever and then he says you know this was the catalyst to bring me into writing and i never would be a writer if this hadn't happened and that like pulling that trigger was my beginning into writing oh my god he does yeah in his foreword to queer that he published like much later Mm -hmm. he says I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death and to a realization of the extent to which this event has motivated and formulated my writing. I live with the constant threat of possession, a constant need to escape from possession, from control. So the death of Joan brought me in contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I have no choice except to write my way out. Oh, my God. So he's basically like saying, so if you like my book, you can't be mad at me for accidentally slash I kind of did it on purpose slash someone else made me do it, death. I mean, he's literally saying, I don't want to be controlled. I mean, like what a, a part of that is like, it's not like your partner controls you, but I mean, like if you have a, two children and a wife yeah you know that is going to control some of what you can do in your life and he's like i can't be controlled because i have an ugly i mean it's just so (laughs) vague and i don't know i just started reading these and i was like are you kidding and then alan ginsburg yeah his whole angle is all of his friends basically doubled down on this idea that Joan had a death wish. They're like, Joan wanted to die. That's the yeah. thing about Joan. She knew that Allen Ginsberg would get her to a place where she could die because that's all she wanted. Right. <laughs> you know, but it's like another justification. So, and they were sense. friends with her and they loved her. And they knew her very well. Yeah. And that one friend said she ran into her and she was like, I'm not going to make it with some sort of like... She wasn't sad when she said that. Yeah. I mean, I think some of this stuff also makes it seem like 
everybody just thinks Burroughs is bad for her. Yeah. You know, so it's one thing, I guess, to have a death wish, but it's another thing to have a partner who actively encourages your demise. You know yeah, what I mean? Right, yeah, Beyond course, the shooting, but it, like yeah. with all that kind of stuff, to have a partner yeah. who's not going to care whether or not like they're seeing you physically deteriorate in front yeah. of their eyes. You know, totally. It's you can say that she wanted that because she stayed with him, but it's also like, I don't know. So. Uh... Okay, well, did Burroughs... He lived a long life, right? There's like pictures of him as an old man, right? Yeah, yeah he lived until 1997. And how did he die? Heart attack. So basically, Burroughs remained an iconic writer whose yeah. wife's outrageous death seemed to add to his mystique. Yeah. Um, during the last decade of his life, he was still super celebrated. In 1989, he was in the Gus Van Sant film Drugstore Cowboy. In 1991, David Cronenberg adapted Naked Lunch into a movie. Yeah. And in 1993, Burroughs recorded an album with Kurt Cobain called The Priest They Called Him. And then three years before he died of a heart attack in 1997, he made a commercial for Nike. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to see it? Yeah, for sure. To make life easier, to make anything, anything possible, it's the coming of the new technology. For the purpose of technology is not to confuse the brain, but to serve the body. Damn, they had Ken Griffey Jr. in it and everything? <laughs> Nike was just... Going wild back in the day, man. He was on SNL too. Yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah. I guess everyone just loves him. Yep. <laughs> right. What do you think about that story? <laughs> oh man, it's it's uh it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's just so easy to f- romanticize people from past eras and like the rough and tumble, you know, artists that created the thing. I mean, I can't sit here and say I'm super inspired by the beats, but I'm definitely inspired by the people that were inspired by the beats. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. A second, third wave of, of those dudes kind of, you know, changing the landscape and, you know, suddenly we're here doing this podcast. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel dirty. <laughs> I feel dirty. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I mean, for the record, I think it's a really interesting story. I mean, it what he was convicted of manslaughter, not of murder. There are two stories that have been going on for yeah. the last, I don't know, what is this, 60, 70 years. Yeah. So we can't sit here and say that he for sure murdered Joan Vollmer, but it's crazy the way that, like to me, the yeah. red flag, if I were to just like completely editorialize it, whatever, yeah, yeah. the red flag for me is that nobody can just talk about it straight. You know, like they have to sit here and say it was an ugly spirit and she had a death. Which they're using all of this language right. to describe something that is pretty straightforward, you know? Yeah, and they were really, really sick. They had a horrible, horrible disease. And somewhere in the midst of that, a gun was pointed and a trigger was pulled right or accidentally or not i think it was definitely on purpose yeah. i guess all i'm saying <laughs> it really sounds like it was. i on mean purpose. it's on purpose it's just whether or not was he trying to do william teller whether he was trying to shoot joan yeah. like nobody is going to know that except for william s burroughs and yeah. maybe joan because apparently they had a telepathic relationship well there was also so much drugs in the mix that he probably doesn't know and he's 
heard so many different stories and his memory might be completely messed up that he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Anymore. Right. Nobody knows. But I just think it's suspicious when somebody just can't say he made a huge mistake. Yeah. Right. And they were drugged up and drunk and he shot her like he goes, oh, Joan was killed. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know. they're all authors. They all know the power of language. Yeah. Right. You know, everything that he says is unreasonable. Even if he did it on accident, he still killed Joan. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, if you yeah, can't yeah. say those words, then I feel like you have a little bit of like a guilt thing on your conscience. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have a little bit less guilt for never having read anything by him. And I'll make sure to have a little bit more guilt if I end up actually reading something by him. <laughs> I don't want you to feel guilty, love. <laughs> it's just about like, I know that you have a fantasy about these guys. Yeah, right. And so I feel like it'd be good to introduce another aspect of the history of this person. Oh, you mean one little drop of reality? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research and I did all the editing and post-production. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. We are having a ton of fun over on social media with little bonus content animations for you. Find at Murals Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, and now Fanbase. Our DMs are open and you can email us at muralsmurders at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, please add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends should tune into. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Casalini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you just can't get enough of us and you want to hear us do a non-murder podcast, please find Hella in your 30s wherever you are listening to this podcast. All right, that's it. Bye. Ever wanted to hear the story of the time that Melissa Fumero from Brooklyn Nine-Nine's kid had a two-hour-long tantrum that drove generations of their family to weep? Or maybe the story of SNL's Bobby Moynihan's kid who found random pizza in a playground sandbox and ate it? If so, you should check out Why Mommy Drinks, a weekly comedy podcast where I, Betsy Stover, talk to interesting people like Richard Jefferson from the NBA or Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about a time that their kids broke them down into a shell of their former selves or maybe even drove them to drink, but in a fun way. If you have kids, this show will make you feel less alone. And if you don't have kids, you're going to be so glad you don't have kids. Listen on Campfire Media, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. My mommy drinks. Campfire.